You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Welcome to The Magnet Podcast. I'm Lewis Kornfeld. Today I'm talking with Charles Rogers. Charles, hello. Hi. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for asking me to come to here. I am assuming that you're on cloud nine. I... I yeah, part of me is now. All of me was before, but yeah. now I'm like I think I had a lot of adrenaline for the last week, and now my pendulum is kind of swung the other way. So I'm happy, but I'm also like really out of it now. So. It, it, like uh, I see, uh, okay, it, 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 in a place of like self doubt about the next step, or just sort of you've exhausted, you've burned through the adrenaline, and now you're kind of returning to a stable place. Uh, well, I never came from a stable place, so I'm, <laughs> like the adrenaline is, you know, I'm burnt out, but I'm also very happy. Great. That's the way I feel. Charles, uh, for those listening who don't know this, has just recently won the uh, South by Southwest South by Southwest Grand Jury Award for his new film, Fort Dilden. Super mega. Congratulations. Thank you. That's incredible. Uh, um what does it mean for your life and your career and, and your sense of well-being that you've won this award? Uh, okay. Um, for my life, (laughs) it means, it means, uh, it means I don't know exactly what it means, but I do know that it means that this is, uh, this is the first big step that I've ever really taken in that way. And, uh, I made the film with a collaborator, Sarah Violet Bliss, and, um, we co-wrote and co-directed together. So, so it's, it means now that suddenly there's a lot more opportunities that are going to be presented to us. And, um, before I was, you know, in film school, you kind of make things in a little bit of a vacuum. And now there's suddenly an audience and a world and, and, um, it's something I've wanted for a long time. Were you taken by surprise or did you kind of secretly, you kind of knew that you'd get that kind of feedback? I don't know. I, I thought it's hard because I think sometimes I feel like I have a sixth sense about the way things are going to be received. Yeah. And in the back of my mind, I thought we could really like something really great could happen at this festival. And the second we got to the festival, I think I was just presented with all the other people and the, you know, the, the competition and there's just so many vibes and like so much drinking. And by day four, I was like, I don't know anymore. And then we started to get press and some of it was good, but it was the first time I've ever read a bad review before and and that kind of threw me uh that kind of threw us off a little bit and we didn't know what to expect and then the night that we won the award was like just an amazing it was an amazing night it was one of the craziest uh experiences of my life see that it probably wouldn't have been so satisfying if you didn't have that one moment of bad press to kind of rack your rack your confidence yeah it's true it's kind of it's interesting how that works sort of of like without a little bit of self-doubt i feel like the successes that you accomplish don't quite have that level of enthusiasm yeah definitely you know yeah uh um uh can you would you mind talking briefly just about the film for anybody who hasn't seen it yet and also i know you have a kickstarter campaign for distribution for it so whatever you'd like to announce for people i saw the movie this morning uh because you were kind enough to pass me a screener it's wonderful uh i can't recommend it more highly to people so explain the concept of the movie uh well i'll start off by saying that the kickstarter has four more hours in it so, so people need to go back in time by the time they've heard this podcast okay. or just <laughs> donate cash yeah. to charles yeah just in, just yeah. paypal me um so the movie is a comedy about ali and harper who are two best friends living in williamsburg and they go out to fort tilden beach for the day uh to meet up with some guys they met the night before and it's kind of a 
kind of a comedy of errors, buddy road trip movie of their experience going through Brooklyn and all of the mistakes that they make along the way and the obstacles that present themselves throughout the journey. It's a, uh, um, when I was watching it, I was like, oh, it has like a very, uh, kind of, uh, Italian neorealist aspect to it. Yeah. There's a, there's a heightened sense to the, the things they experience. Definitely. But also like the narrative is kind of flattened out in that way of, it tends to focus on really small moments and small obstacles, Mm -hmm. but it also gives, uh, like the, 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 their environment, you get a really strong sense of, of Brooklynites, of Williamsburg Brooklynites. You get a really strong sense of people in their world and it's heightened and it's, it, 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 kind of satirical Mm -hmm. but it also it has that feeling of like oh it's kind of like it's more of getting an insight into this universe that's out there in that way you know was was that did i read that correctly i think you did yeah Yeah, the one of the ways we like to explain the movie is that it's satirical but sympathetic at the same time so there is this sort of there is sort of a look into uh you know the satire is a look into brooklyn and on the you know the things that you can poke fun at yeah um but at the same time, it's it's done with love, and there it's in the tradition of comedies that you know a, a lot of road trip movies. You exp- like uh, the characters experience like big things along the way that are a little more farcical. So there there's a mix of tones, and I think part of that came from collaborating too, and with uh, Sarah Violet, and and I you know I think we found somewhere in between. Well, what was how did the collaboration kind of alter the original idea? Well, we came up with the idea together. So, so it never knew a stage without that collaboration. Yeah. But we, we thought of the idea at the end of May and we just liked the premise of two girls just trying to get to the beach and yeah. how simple that is and how much like comic potential, comedic potential there is in that. So we just kind of kept working it and writing and rewriting and finding out who Allie and Harper were and how they were, why they were friends and what they needed to, what their deal was. And, um, and it kind of just presented itself. We both knew what we wanted and what we liked. And then those things were in communication throughout the, the writing and rewriting. And the movie is just like chock full of improvisers. Like mm-hmm. it, it, I'd say 90% of the faces are all yeah. improv people. Yeah. Uh, how much did their collaboration sort of inform or alter what you guys had set out to do or how much of it was pretty fully realized before you had the actors on board? Most of it was written. The yeah. majority of the film was written, especially with the leads. There were a few, there are a few roles and it's, it's hard to just like talk about if you haven't seen it, but there's a scene where there's like uh, three gay guys and, um, this this one guy who the character Harper is in love with Benji Benji who's a drug dealer and not good for her and uh they were very they loved improvising and all of the improvisers were great improvisers but um it was it's a film that that sticks to the script for yeah. the most part i think what improvisers did bring was a cer- uh, like a certain looseness and an understanding of comedy yeah. and so in that sense like it's so great to know so many improvisers because I was able to cast, you know, personalities who I'm friends with, who I, I understand their strengths and not have to worry about that. Cause I knew what they would bring. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting how that fit too into the kind of texture of the film because improvisers, uh, um, uh, are really good at being able to kind of express heightened versions of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so it, like the movie, there's a, a lot about eccentric behavior in the movie. And there's a lot about, about Williamsburg and Brooklyn as sort of a place of eccentricity. And so mm-hmm. populating it like that really helped to, it, it seemed very much of a whole. Yeah. Yeah. I think a big part of the comedy comes from 
uh, like meaninglessness and people saying things that don't really mean anything. And, and I think there's something in improvisers that really get that and, yeah. and know how to play that version of themselves. Yeah. It, it, I loved, um, cause it, you know, with a typical road trip movie, first the trip itself is from Brooklyn to Brooklyn. It's a, not yeah. a huge trip, even though you make Brooklyn seem huge and scary. Yeah. Very, it's, it, you, you, that was one thing that really impressed me with it was the way that it, you feel lost. It, mm-hmm. it, the way it takes them all day to get to Fort Tilden and right. you, do, you, you feel the size and scope of Brooklyn mm-hmm. and the way, even there's a line about being stuck in the, in the, in deep Brooklyn, mm-hmm. uh, then it's like, Oh yeah, it, you, it, there's actually something that feels kind of menacing, which, which yeah. I, to me felt like it plays into, uh, uh, this thing of kind of being lost in the middle of your own life, not to be too precious right. about it, but yeah. a, a big part of the movie is kind of people not knowing what to do. Yeah being lost having no direction yeah uh, and a big part of that in the film comes from the fact that they start off in williamsburg which is like a very comfortable insulated environment and then when they start going off into different neighborhoods they're way out of their comfort zone and um it just takes a simple journey to throw them you know to suddenly have to expose like the hypocritical side of their privilege to, yeah you know it's, it's not a it's not a long it's not a big journey but at the same time you can go through a lot of neighborhoods and a lot of scenarios that can bring out the different aspects of your own understanding of cultures and stuff. And there's definitely like, uh, there's a subtext in the movie too, that I found really interesting of like, there's hints of racism with them yeah. or, or, or racism, racism implies something hateful, which it didn't seem hateful. It just seemed the ignorance of privilege of being totally. kind of secluded in your own comfort zone and not ever having to try to understand other people or, yeah. or go out to other people and, and know their, what their lives are like well that's i think that's a big part of like white privilege too is to talk about the places you've been and the connections you have to different like parts of the world but at the same time you choose other white people as your associates and your environment so they're they're both like consider themselves to be like well-traveled jet setters but at the same time just getting on flatbush avenue suddenly makes them uncomfortable yeah yeah it's interesting because like i want to talk to you for a second about um uh hipsters if that's cool because being hip is such a big part of the movie and the kind of hipster lifestyle is a big part of the movie yeah and and uh, well first off i'm not a brooklyn guy myself and one thing that i find brooklyn very intimidating Mm -hmm. the 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 size and scope that you guys managed to capture in the movie feels very much like my sense of brooklyn i feel (laughs) horribly lost when i'm there i don't know where i am i don't have a sense of direction it's really scary Mm -hmm. but there's also like brooklyn is its own universe uh, populated by small other dense universes. And mm-hmm. there's a fierce pride for people who live there. Um, what is that about? Like, it, and, and I, I, I sound pejorative and I don't mean to, it, I'm just kind of curious because it, it, it's such a character in the movie, you know? And I think yeah. it's also true of real life of people, there's fierce pride about living in Brooklyn and, and a lot of self identity goes into being a Brooklyn person. Yeah. Well, I live in Brooklyn, but I mean, I'm not even from New York, so I'm one of the people who moved to Brooklyn. And I think that there's a difference in people who are from Brooklyn, like Sarah Violet, who I made the movie with. She's actually from Brooklyn. And the pride that comes from being there is a different kind of pride from the one that comes from moving there. Yeah. And uh, when you move there, or if you live there, it's, I mean, some people live in Brooklyn because it's cheaper than living in Manhattan. And there's like a cultural aspect to that. But some people move to Brooklyn because you're not moving to Manhattan if you move to Brooklyn. And that's like a, that's a very conscious choice. Yeah. And so I think that part of that like intensity comes from telegraphing that choice to people who 
like if you visit Brooklyn, it's easy to feel intimidated because everyone is like communicating very clearly their choices. You yeah. know, yeah. there's something about alternative lifestyle that is, uh, I think that people uh, don't like what people don't like about hipsters is the fact that they're very clearly telegraphing what they have not agreed to uh-huh. you know <laughs> so and, and i think that can make people feel like that's a comment on them yeah. when most of the time i think that hipster culture has more to do with that person itself than it does with the people around them that's an interesting point about like telegraphing your choices to people because the, mm-hmm. there's there's something kind of aggressive about that too in a way it, it, you're kind of declaring yourself to people loud and clear and that can that can seem um uh maybe like a little bit invasive sometimes to kind of have it sort yeah. of like in your face of like, this is my life, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, um, it's interesting how like so much of the movie is about that of like declaring choices, mm-hmm. but also being very secluded in a way, mm-hmm. you know, like oh, that's um, what it is. I mean, that's what Williamsburg is essentially, yeah. or like any of these hipster cities and you know, like you declare your choice and then you unite with people who agree with that choice, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's like, what do you, who's listening? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, <laughs> it's interesting too. Cause like, uh, um, like the, the kind of like 1950s style hipster mm-hmm. seemed to come from a place of, of breaking away from the norm breaking away from the, from whatever the kind of like cultural agreement was of, of, you know, what like America is supposed to look like mm-hmm. and people who were choosing deliberately to kind of live more intensely, live by different rules. And that classic hipster kind of went out to meet the world. Right. And then sort of got wrecked along the way in a lot of cases, you mm-hmm. know, that kind of like Kerouac idea, but, but it was very much about going out to meet the unknown and going out to meet the peculiar and going out. Yeah. Whereas the kind of hipsters that are sort of in your movie and, and I think are the hipster that you think of when you get the joke idea of hipster mm-hmm. are not people who are going out to meet the world. They're people who very deliberately are kind of have created a world of their own. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, was that, let me backtrack a little bit. One thing that I really dug about the movie was the way that it has a, it's very funny, but there is, there's a compassion for these women and mm-hmm. you do feel very strongly for them. What, what, what was the idea with what you guys were setting out to satirize with what you guys, what was it? What was it? Why did you make the movie? Charles? <laughs> I, well, we made the movie because we liked the characters. Yeah. Even if we didn't, you know, the writing process, writing is weird because you don't know what's missing while you're writing. You're just writing towards something and you don't know what isn't working because you haven't seen it yet. So as we were developing the characters, we, we had a feeling about why they were funny and why we liked them. And then as we refined them, we got to really know what that meant. And, um, we both loved the, we both loved the characters. And I think that the movie wouldn't work if we didn't feel that way about them. But, uh, we wrote in our, we basically improvised while writing the script. We, one of us would be at a computer and, and we would just talk in the voice of the characters back and forth. And that was kind of how we got into the swing of who they were. So I feel like they were made from us originally as a starting place. Yeah. They, um, there's a helplessness to the two of them. That's really funny. Like so many of the obstacles that they encounter along the way to the beach are self-made obstacles of like the bike stealing scene Uh where it's, you could so easily prevent this from happening by just going outside and stopping this kid from stealing the bike. Right. And it's exactly in situations like that where they just seem to not know what to do. 
Yeah. Well, they they choose helplessness too. Yeah. I think a part of that is like they let that happen because they could go outside and they could stop, but there's it's almost like the easier choice. It's easier to be confused. It's easier to let things happen. I think that's a casualty of privilege is that when you're confronted with real situations, you're a little bit paralyzed because you haven't had to deal with things before yeah. yourself. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Choosing that, that passive. Yeah. I, you know, I think that there's like a larger theme about, about this generation, uh, that that's speaking to, I think like, you know, we're not necessarily a very politically active generation, but we're very aware of these things. There's something about choosing passiveness that is like a staple of being a hipster, mm. which is uh, a shame because that's not where the origins of being a hipster came from. Mm. You know, there, like the 1950s hipster you're talking about. I think that you could afford to go out and discover the unknown because it was a simpler playing field and then what was known was every like the conventional conventional america was the known so it was easier to go out but i think that now with the internet and in like uh, being you know everyone receives somewhat of an education in the country it's you're aware of these things but there's no encouragement to employ any tools to work towards making the world better necessarily yeah i heard an interview one time with Catherine o'hara where where she was talking about all the great comedians to come out of canada uh, from her particular generation and she said that it, it, one of the reasons for it was because canada is such a great straight man <laughs> uh and it's sort of like 1950s america was also such a great straight man yeah for eccentrics to play off against yeah and there is sort of a thing now where it's like there isn't really a straight man to play off against there's it you can't turn away from mainstream because you don't even know what mainstream is anymore really. right everything is is just part of the same kind of yeah do and there's layers and and um we've seen so many things now yeah it's it's hard to find something completely new because you kind of have to build off of things that have existed before yeah there's definitely like a lack of innocence and and you know i I think like the post-vietnam world too like as americans even though we don't really think about it too much it left that impression of like you are aware of how horrible we're capable of being Mm -hmm. um there's a certain loss of innocence and a certain sense of kind of cynicism and irony that comes out of that especially too of like the way that you know that culture is being packaged to you and the way that you know it's all just part of a stream of marketing largely right but you take it you take it because what else do you do yeah there's no there's no alternative there's no alternative except to create a little island of like-minded people right be with those people and to call it an alternative and to call it an alternative yeah one of the things that is so sweet about the movie is that the way it's really about these two girls are, are really our best friends. They love each other. Yeah. It, at, at the core of it, 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 the whole movie is an opportunity for them to spend a day together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're not good for each other. Yeah. They're, they love they they need each other, but they're not necessarily good for each other. Yeah, totally. What, um, I'm curious what your thoughts are about the way that, I don't even know what generation I'm in. I think I'm something in like the tail of Gen X or Gen yeah. Pepsi generation or whatever. The, the Pepsi generation. I'm the, whatever the fuck it is. It's sponsored by Pepsi. It, it, I, 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 I'll take it. Why the hell not? Why? What is with the exception to define your generation? Cause I don't know because I don't even... I, I guess I am a millennial I, and I never even thought about it until making this movie and suddenly publications. It, it's so weird because... 
before making this movie, I mean, I guess I did have opinions about, you know, people my age, of course, but I never was thinking about things in terms of millennials. And yeah. suddenly, like, publications are asking me, like, what, what's your take on millennials? And it's like, well, I, I don't know. Hold on. Let me think about if I'm if I'm a millennial. Um, but I am. And I think that there's there's just a need to constantly uh like categorize all these like cultural waves because i don't understand where my generation ends and yours starts and with millennials i feel like when i think of millennials i think of of younger people who were born with their who grew up with the internet like in high school i think that there's a like a total cultural difference with people who know how to communicate more with the internet and um and I, I don't, I feel like I'm in between those two things too. And that's, mm. it's also like meaningless. It shouldn't be defined by years. It should be defined by, I don't know, some other, some other like cultural markers that, that, you know, I feel like it, it should be like the nine eleven generation and mm. then the, the emoji generation, not mm. necessarily Gen X, Gen Y millennials. Do you think like, you think a lot of that is just like needing to have things to write about? I think so. I think it's easier this way to kind of define things in like very labeled terms. Um, and I think that there's some pride that people have about being a part of one generation or another. I know that with like this movie and uh, like stories that revolve like films and TV that revolve around millennials, there's like uh, people love to hate on millennials right yeah. now. And yeah. I think people are like really like they're like going to Wikipedia and making sure they're not a millennial so that they can write about millennials. So <laughs> I think there's something there's something about like, I don't know. There's like a tribalism to it or something. Yeah. Part of it too, I think is like, um, in the same way as like, you haven't really had to think about what your generation is until you've been hounded by interviewers to have to kind of express yourself for articles. Yeah. It, it, and this is one of the interesting things about the kind of the internet world and, and being in the mix. Cause I come from the tail end of people. I, I was, I was not trained on computers in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was trained on a typewriter in school. I learned how to type. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm like the last wave of that generation who grew up without the experience of the internet as being the main part of your life. Mm-hmm. And so now we're in this sort of weird seismic shift where everybody is used to being inundated constantly. Um, and if you want to be heard and you want to be part of that stream and not just be swallowed up by all the shit that's out there, you have to make a little bit more of a wave than everybody else, which, yeah. you know, and, and so some part of that wave is looking for ways to package your own identity and looking for ways to brand your own identity, to set yourself apart from other people so that they'll take notice of you and follow along and give you the likes, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and part of that is creating an identity that people can disagree with too. Yeah. And I never had realized that before until like we started to get reviews with people saying that they didn't like certain aspects of the movie. It's like in some weird way, it's better to make something that people can say no, like some people love and some people hate than yeah. it is to make something that some, like everyone kind of likes, Yeah, which is so weird yeah. that you, you're encouraged to create an identity that, people some people will hate (laughs) because it sells more well is it even possible anymore to have something that's sort of marketed to just like the 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 g rated movie Mm -hmm. not like the innocent movie but the movie that's meant for like general distribution everybody's supposed to is that even a thing anymore i don't know maybe like saving mr banks or something or maybe uh like christian films are like that 
there, uh, there's no market for everyone anymore. Yeah. Avatar. That's as close as you can get to everyone. And even that of, you know, well, yeah, we have to like kill ourselves. People. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's the end of the world. Yeah. How do you feel about that? It, Cause coming up as a filmmaker now in that environment where, where internet and streaming have kind of democratized everything in a way, but they've also now created little tribes of yeah. people with like-minded tastes. So I've, I imagine that that's, there's a lot that's really positive about that. And there's a lot that's really negative about that. What, how does that affect you as a filmmaker? I like to watch movies in theaters. So, you know, it's hard for me to wrap my head around people who like to watch things on their laptops because I have a shorter attention span with that. Yeah. Um, so, and I think most movies should be seen in movie theaters, but I understand that, you know, it doesn't work that way anymore and you just have to accept these things. But, uh, yeah, when, when they talk about distribution for indie films, now they talk about getting it out there in a way that, you know, is like in VOD and iTunes and all this stuff, because that's like a huge part of it now. And, um, you know, it, it's the same as there's, uh, people don't shoot on film anymore. People shoot digitally and it's like really hard to find like a film processing place in New York now. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, feels like I'm walking into something that's changing rapidly, but I get the impression that the film industry has always changed like constantly and rapidly. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I like watching movies with people around me. I like watch, watching them in a theater. I like being at a theater. So, uh, you know, I, whatever people want to, however, whatever it takes to get people to watch my movie. Sure. You know? Yeah. It's interesting because it, it, uh, movies and TV shows right now, I think TV shows probably more than movies, but it, it it's almost like a little bit of a throwback to the way that people used to serialize novels and magazines at the turn of the century, mm-hmm. um, where it's about constantly having more content to generate. And one of the things that bugs me about watching on a laptop or on a phone, God help you, is like, turn it off and walk away whenever you want and restart whenever you want. And so your mind tends to focus more on the content of the story than on the experience. Like there's something about being in a movie theater. You're just like walking in and kind of looking at the other people in the room with you and, and you know, like the smell of it and the yeah. old, you know, like where it's more of sharing an experience with people yeah. rather than just absorbing more content. Yeah, definitely. It's immersive. Yeah. And because it's immersive, you you absorb more of the film. Yeah. And, you know, I'll watch things on my laptop and realize that I miss them when I talk about it with other people. Yeah. But I don't feel that way so much in movie theaters. It's interesting because, like, when you're absorbing the film, you're kind of taking it in on these channels that you may not be taking stuff in on when it's at your own leisure and convenience. Definitely. I think you have a higher tolerance in movie theaters. For sure. And when I'm at home and... If I had a cat, I'm sure the cat would be distracting me. You know, it's just a different experience at home. Yeah. Well, it's also like you focus more at home on like what is happening. Game of Thrones is a really great example of like it's serialization. It's just what is the next step right. of the story. And people will stick with it for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it's basically like you can recount the story to people and still get basically what you need to get from the shows. Whereas in like I'm a big like 1970s American movie guy. Mm-hmm. I, I that's that's the period. I kind of romanticize that period. I think there, it was interesting, and and nobody quite knew what to do, and so they just sort of turned it over to people and was like, "Oh, just keep your expenses low, and and we don't know how to reach these audiences, so do what you can do." Yeah, and there was a lot of personality to it, and and a weird kind of poetry to a lot of those movies too. And I like them because the ones that work and that affect you affect you in ways that are beyond just, I can't recount to you why 
McCabe yeah. and Mrs. Miller is so wonderful. I can't summarize it in two mm-hmm. sentences. It's an experience that you have. It works kind of on your unconscious a little bit. Yeah. That's kind of the magic of film, like of, of great, of great cinema is that it's speaking to something, uh, ineffable, something that like you can't exactly put into words, but it's, that's sort of the spiritual part of cinema is yeah. when it was when you're, that's the art of it. Yeah. It's when you can't explain it. Yeah. Who are your influences? Who are the people that you really look up to? Uh, I love like Robert Altman and uh, it just, it depends on where my head's at during the day, but I love now my favorite films are dramas. But Mm -hmm. when I was growing up, my parents have a good sense of humor and I was shown a lot of comedies. And so I grew up with like the Marx brothers and Mel Brooks and uh, I loved SCTV in high school. And I feel like those things shaped me more than, more than anything. And now, now like I'll usually choose to watch like, you know, like a good drama because I feel like, well, I don't know. There's good and bad everything, but you know, it's some comedies are just hard to sit through. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like I want to bring some sort of sensibility that, that kind of connects like, uh, like the comedy that's used in those more like broader traditional comedies. Like I want to find a way to like bring that into a more modern approach. Cause I think our generation has a, has a tendency to, to disregard those films in that tradition. Yeah. It, it, I, I read, uh, an article somewhere about how like our generation is now we're the sincere generation. Again, it also sounds like more of like, we need a story to write on salon.com or something. I wonder if so. that's, do you think that's true? I don't know. I, I, I in some ways, I, I mean, I can't speak for the generation. I don't even know what generation I'm part of. Right. I can speak for me. And I know that I get like irony will start to fall flat on me after a little while. Sure. I, I like it. I, I just like when people are sincere around me and I like watching things that are sincere art, yeah. you know, but the, those are both complicated things too. You know, the, like sincerity and irony it's, and, um, and I, I like it when you can do both totally. And I, I think that's just a matter of if that comes to you or not. But I think that's, I think that's something to do with comedians is that uh, comedians are communicating, communicating sincerity through irony. Yes. Yeah, totally. And it, like going back to like Robert Altman for a second, one of the things that I really love about him when he was really cooking is the way that he, a moment is comic or horrifying or ironic or sincere, kind of depending on how you're feeling at that moment when yeah. you're watching it. He mm-hmm. didn't draw that distinction and say, I'm making a comedy, I'm making a musical. It was meant to be more like real life where those distinctions are blurred. You don't really, it is kind of, it's an event and however you're processing that event in that moment is what you're processing. Yeah, definitely. And he cast people that could do, who could, you know, paint, paint with any, uh, acrylic. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. Who could like, who could touch like Lily Tomlin is somebody who can do comedy and drama. Totally. You know, sometimes in the same line of dialogue. Yeah. 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 It's one of the things going back to, to your movie that I really liked was, there's a lot of comedy that comes out of how deliberately helpless these women are. And a lot of comedy of like, they're constantly harping on how broke they are, Mm -hmm. but they can't walk for two minutes without having to buy something ridiculously. Mm -hmm. There's no money transacted at all in the movie. Uh, Harper pays for a nice coffee with a check. Yeah. And, and throughout most of the movie, that's really funny. And it's part of a game that's being played with the two of them of, of like, they just, they have these shopping impulses and they don't know the value of anything. Mm-hmm. They buy a, uh, uh, what do we call it? Uh, a barrel, a barrel for 200 bucks from some dude, <laughs> uh, which then is immediately garbage immediately. Everything that they buy is immediately garbage. Mm-hmm. So it's funny throughout the movie, but then there's that one great scene when they're in the, uh, in the SUV 
uh, where you kind of realize all the money that's being wired to Harper's character from her dad is kind of coming from a nefarious place. Mm -hmm. And I found that was like a really interesting, had that feel to it of like, Oh, it's very funny. It's very funny. Uh, And then suddenly it's kind of not very funny. You realize of, of how they fit into a broader world. Right. And, uh, Harper's probably the character that's a little harder to digest yeah. for audiences because she's a, she's meaner. She says meaner things. Um, she her defenses are always up, and so yeah, we wanted you. We wanted the audience to realize later in the movie rather than earlier why you should uh, identify with her or understand her where her vulnerability is coming from. Yeah. So the scene that that happens in, you realize that her dad. It's it's not exactly clear but her dad is probably not the greatest guy in the world yeah. and she's very dependent on her father and um and that's kind of the moment where you begin to see like what's underneath what's underneath her um and she pays for with things with checks the entire way and i, I think there's something funny about checks because like a credit card is is imminent you see it swipe and you know that it's like probably like now or in seconds like transacted in your bank account but you never have any idea where checks are until they just like show up, you know, yeah. until you look at your account and you get, so there's something even more like unreal and, and less realistic about checks that, uh, that kind of supports the whole idea of like how careless they, their relationship with money is and how money has so much to do with her relationship with her dad. Yeah. But that they don't have to be careful because there, I mean, it, there's no money. There's nothing. You're, right. you're paying with nothing. Yeah. You have nothing but a signature and you're able to get everything that you need with that. Yeah. And she starts the day off with no money in her account too. With and, no money. And gives checks away with no money in her yeah. account. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 but this is a person from a place of privilege who kind of has all the power and seeing them go through neighborhoods where they feel very unsafe and you kind of get that thing of like, oh yeah, it, 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 it's really unfair. It's horribly mm-hmm. unfair. They have all this clout with nothing to back it up. And even the fact of like, her relationship with her dad is so important to her, but her dad's never there either. It's that kind of absence in her life that you start to kind of sympathize with more and more over Mm -hmm. it. And I found myself really disliking her for a lot of it, Mm -hmm. you know, and then also suddenly having it kind of pulled out from under me of like, Oh, there's kind of a loneliness to it. It, You're, you're, you're kind of a person in a way it's kind of lost at sea. You're surrounded by emptiness. There's no money. There's no relationship. There's no dad, you know, and you're kind of drawing checks on, Mm-hmm. on this nothing i don't know yeah yeah did, I, she, did well, I watch that correctly i think you watched it very correctly Hot dog. <laughs> well i think all of those things have to do with um like her you begin to understand why her like uh, right and wrong is so important to her yeah. and she seems to like to know what the right thing is to do and she's bossy and she she's made up her mind about every she has an opinion about everything and she's made her mind up about that and the farther into the story you get, you realize that's because it's covering up a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. Let's talk about comedy for a second, because maybe people listening to this don't know other than being uh, 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 a filmmaker. You're also a hilarious improviser. Mm-hmm. Hilarious. Very funny. That's true. <laughs> uh, um, so I'm really interested in this because for a lot of people, comedy is just you, you, you create comedy product, make people laugh, have it kind of be a predictable rhythm. Um, but I'm interested in, in the way that you see sort of comedy blending or, or using old tropes of comedy for new purposes or seeing it blending with different kinds of genres or different kind of emotional experiences. What kind of role does your, your life as a comedian play in your life as a filmmaker? Yeah. I really think that, uh, doing improv has 
made me a more evolved filmmaker and making films has made me a more evolved improviser. Um, the, I, I definitely feel like the writing process is similar for both improv and for, for writing stories in that like dramatic tension is comedic tension and everything must rest on that. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh it's i think it's actually confusing like when you because i'm somebody who is addicted to laughter and to getting laughs and it's confusing when you make a film that blends uh comedy with dramatic elements because because i know exactly where the audience is it's a visceral thing when people are laughing you know how they're experiencing something um but there's an entire other side to drama which doesn't involve laughter and and when you're in a room with people, you can definitely feel the tension. You can feel when people are in it, not in it, you know, there, you can navigate that, but it's a very different experience to sort of sync up in the head and the mind of people when they're watching drama. So ultimately I think being able to blend those things just comes from instincts and trusting instincts. And, um, all of my films, my short films that I made, this is the first feature I ever made, but my short films there, there's always something sad or uncomfortable or you know there's something dramatic about all of them because i i i don't i don't like it when things are just funny without weight mm-hmm. um i like high stakes and i like it when people take things a little too seriously and i think that's where a lot of good comedy comes from yeah and uh and there's something dramatic about that too so i think it's i can't give like a a very explicit like paint by numbers answer about how you blend things other than you do what feels right and when when i worked with sarah violet and so that's a conversation and we're both bringing our understanding of drama and comedy together and uh i like it when things are sad and when when the comedy is resting on top of something truthful and a comedy should always rest on top of something truthful but there's different kinds of truthful and i think comedy that's pure comedy often the the thing that you take away from it that's enriching is intellectual and when you're making a film there's or a different type of story there's also an emotional element that you want people to to leave with because um because comedy in and of itself is is um is is really uh it's a short-term thing you Mm -hmm. know you want people to laugh but they might not be laughing about it two days later Mm -hmm. but they'll be thinking about it did you find yourself when you made the movie surprised by anything that was meant to be funny and then you found there was more weight to it or stuff that was meant to be weighty and you found was funnier than you thought at first every screening is different and every every audience is different yeah and so it's really interesting to see what people pick up on and it's weird sometimes like an audience will ride one scene and it's tension this way and then it will leave them off like kilter a little bit and then it takes them a while to catch up with the next scene or in some screenings people are on it exactly the way i felt it when writing it yeah. or sometimes people respond to the drama sometimes people you know it's it's different with every scene every screening but um i think one thing that really took me by surprise is, is that some people find the characters very unlikable mm. and they're designed to be like extremely flawed and to make poor choices but uh we wrote it with an understanding of the comedy behind the characters mm-hmm. and it's interesting some people are just very uncomfortable with the with the characters themselves and that was that was something that we we didn't expect well they're both so self-involved up until a point that it's sort of unattractive you know it's that thing of they're so deliberately uh, unfocused on other people's needs and concerns and so able especially uh harper able to kind of cast off any 
you know, like uh, leaving the bike in the garbage and just walking away from it, mm-hmm. dropping it. I, I think that that's something where it is, it's very funny and it's also kind of horrifyingly right. selfish at the yeah. same time. Yeah. But I, if it wasn't selfish, then I don't know, I don't know what you would be laughing at. Absolutely. Know? Yeah. It wouldn't be funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, I also want to talk to you of like, um, there's a little bit of nudity in the film. I don't know if you're comfortable talking about this. I am. Yeah. Um, which I found really interesting, uh, because it comes as a surprise later in the movie, but it also, so much of like the lifestyle, it's kind of, uh, uh, both of these characters go around and spend their days telling things about themselves to people almost as a way to sort of deflect having to really, I don't know do something or, mm-hmm. or know themselves. You mm-hmm. know, the one character is constantly talking and talking about joining the Peace Corps. The other character is talking about her art and is a designer, but you never see either of them actually do anything. It's, it, you know, it, it, you're kind of creating, you're casting a glamor on yourself. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the movie, when there's nudity, it, it's very, I found myself, you see breasts and I found myself thinking of like, Oh, breasts are the udders. <laughs> Of human beings. <laughs> They're not sexy, glamorous bodies. It, and I, I hope that that doesn't come across offensive to anybody. But it's just like, oh, yeah, it's a human body. It's what a human body looks like when it's nude. And there's something kind of... Um, I found myself suddenly having a very specific emotional shift in my understanding of these people. Mm-hmm. There, I, there's something... It, I don't know. It, it kind of stopped me for a second in a way that was very powerful and very interesting. Mm-hmm. Was that also deliberate? Am I reading correctly? You're, yeah, you, yeah, I think so. I mean, the the characters have to... They make a choice of whether or not to undress because they're at a topless beach yeah. and they choose to undress. And um, there's something... And it's not sexual. It's not sexy uh there it's not even near because they they end up talking about really trivial things and sort of trying to impress one another about frivolous accomplishments and stuff while topless and uh there's just something about nakedness that is um like the ultimate vulnerability yeah and um and you know if you have that then you can you know we 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 enjoyed writing you know this bullshit conversation while they have to experience being naked because yeah. it's like we knew what was so vulnerable about their experience in that moment. It's interesting though. Cause could, that's not really played up too much. It, like it's not, they're not comically embarrassed to be nude. It, I was actually surprised at how it's like, okay, you just need to take your clothes off. Right. But there's definitely something about the way that you keep yourself selectively covered up engineers desire in other people. It engineers the image that you want to come across. You have this image of yourself of how you're going to be sexy or, you know, um, and when you see somebody actually with their clothes off, there's something kind of ambiguous to it. You can be sexy one second and completely horrible looking the next second and, and completely unfazed the next second too. Like right. the raw naked human body, it, it can't just be boiled down to one particular response. Definitely. But keeping it covered up oftentimes is engineered and designed specifically to just get that one response. I want to seem desirable. I want to seem attractive. Yeah. But then when you see somebody with their clothes off, it's like, I don't know exactly how to feel. I'm feeling many things simultaneously. Right. It's like, you still need to be told whether or not to find that attractive. Yeah. In some way. Yeah. I mean, and not, not to take it there, but it's kind of like when you're looking at porn and then you're done looking at porn and you're like, Oh, this is what I was looking at. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. 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 This is horrible. This was looking at somebody's afternoon in California. Yeah. Totally. But it's like, uh, um, and it sort of felt like you guys did it 
with the fabric of the movie itself too, not just with that scene, but there are moments where, where it's kind of like, Oh, I don't know exactly how to feel it, it. It, I'm both kind of at a distance and also very close to these people at the same time. Mm-hmm. For me, I really love those moments. I love those moments where a movie puts me in a place where it's ambiguous for me mm-hmm. because then I have to actually check in with myself and check in with what my responses are to things. And I feel like it, it makes me a little bit more awake. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the film, it, it rides, uh, it rides several lines throughout yeah. and I think it keeps you close, but it kind of keeps you distant, keeps you laughing, but hopefully it keeps you, uh, not always laughing at the expense of the characters. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> it just did. <laughs> it's just what we wanted. And then that's, you know, the combination of what we wanted and what we did ended up being that feeling. That's amazing. <laughs> that's true collaboration. I, yeah. I guess that's so. great. Uh, uh, well, it's a beautiful movie. Fort Tilden is the name of it. How can people find it? So it will hopefully come to festivals uh, in New York yeah. soon and uh, find distribution. So if you don't see it at a New York screening sometime soon, then it will hopefully be at a theater or online pretty soon. Will you be able to purchase it from you, get a DVD by finding you online? Uh, When the time comes. Okay. But you can find me online at charlesrogersfilms.com. Please look that up. And you can also see Charles perform at the Magnet Theater with the music industry. Yeah. On Wednesdays as part of Megawatt. Tonight. At 10 p.m. Tonight. Uh-huh. 9 p.m. tonight. Uh, please check that out, too. Charles, thanks for talking, man. Thank you so much. The movie's really beautiful. Check it out, guys. Fort Tilden is the name of it. Uh, this has been the Magnet Podcast. I'm Lewis Kornfeld. Big thanks to Grant Goldberg, our engineer. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, we have classes and shows at the Magnet all the time. www.magnettheater.com is the website to go check out for more information on who we are and what we do. Thank you guys for listening. Once again, thanks, Charles Rogers. Thank you. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast.